Good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab those? We are in the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. And while you're looking for that, we are in the fourth and final week of Advent, which means Christmas is almost here. It's so close, you can almost taste it. And I'm really excited for Christmas. It's only six days away. And we have been reminding ourselves for the last four weeks that we are in what theologians call the already, but the not yet. The already, but the not yet. Now, what is that? We know that Jesus Christ, he descended, he came down to earth, he put on flesh, he engaged in his ministry, he went to the cross, he died, and then he pulled off Easter. All of that is in past tense. It's done. And scripture tells us that his death is our death, and that even more so, his resurrection, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, is our resurrection. And so we rejoice. But also, we're, we're looking ahead, and we're longing for the time in which Jesus will return again in glory, and he will make all things new. And that will be the first day of the rest of our days when we will rejoice in glory with God. And so here we sit, right in the middle, feeling that tension in that already but not yet season. And for the last three weeks, we've taken one Advent theme and we have looked at it throughout the course of the entire week, haven't we? And I just got to give a huge shout out to our 412 team. As you all know, due to COVID restrictions, on account of the floods, we had activities planned for you. We had something for you to do every single day. And pretty much all of that got blown up And they came up with new ideas to share with you so that you can lean into these Advent themes throughout this season. And so we wanted to bless you with that so that by Sunday, these themes were already bursting with flavor. After singing about it, hearing meditations on it, doing devotions on it, walking through activities with family on it. And then here we are looking at this final theme of joy. So here's what I want to do. I want to recap one more time the three themes we've looked at because I want you to see how all of them really cling to each other. In a sense, it's not really four themes, but it's one foundation that helps us understand the Christian faith more fully. So in our first week, we looked at the theme of hope. And Liam taught us that hope is not like the hope of the world, which is wishful thinking, right? I hope we'll have Thanksgiving. I hope I get the present that I want for Christmas. I hope the in-laws don't stay for too long. It's not wishful thinking. But, as he shared with us, hope in the church is waiting for something that we will know, that we know will happen in the future. It's as good as done. You know, uh, in January 23rd, we're going to start a brand new series And it's going to be on the book of Revelation. And this is a book that eludes many of us. I've never preached through Revelation before. I'm really excited about it. And we have all of these themes and these metaphors that are within it, right? You've got dragons and the women and you have all these torches. And we ask ourselves, like, what a strange, enigmatic book. What's it all about? Is it literal? literal? Is it figurative? What's going on? But in a sense, that entire book can be summarized in just two words. You ready for it? God wins. God wins. And because God already has the victory, we get to rejoice too. 
And that's what hope is all about. It's an entire book based on hope. And we've been leaning into this hope even in the midst of our circumstances today. And then the second theme we looked at was peace. And we discovered that the peace that we have in the church is not the peace of this world. Because the peace in the world is always seeking to remove the circumstances, right? Expelling of bad thoughts, expelling of bad people, the removal of certain friends on social media, the removal of negative environments that we're all in. And yet what we discovered was that peace isn't the removal of the waves, it's the stability of the rock. And then last week, we looked at the theme of love. And we discovered this, that only through Jesus' death on the cross can we see that love is made properly visible and is it properly defined. If we look out at the world for love, then we're going to come up wanting. But if we look at the person and the work of Jesus, then we will see love for what it truly is. And so finally, this week, we are looking at the theme of joy. And I think, once again, here's a word that has a lot of baggage, doesn't it? In a sense, it's a word that we use all the time in our everyday nomenclature. But at exactly the same time, I think there's a variety of different definitions that we often give it. I often think that the word joy is pretty synonymous in our culture with happiness. And happiness, as you know, is kind of a fleeting feeling. Sometimes you can wake up in the morning and for whatever reason, you're just in a bad mood. You're not happy. It's fleeting. And so if your happiness, if your joy, if your satisfaction in life is ultimately determined by your circumstances, then it's something that you can lose. And yet what we find in scripture is that joy in Christ is something that you can never lose. You can never lose it. And so this is what my hope is for you this morning. I want you to see joy for what it truly is. I want you to experience this kind of joy, this earth-shaking, this radical, life-giving joy that cannot be taken away from you. And not only that, my hope is, my prayer for us as a church is that we would collectively be a people who exude the joy of Jesus so that even in the experiences that we're all facing uh, in Abbotsford, in BC, whatever personal experiences that you're going through, that people can look to the church and see this incomprehensible joy. That's my prayer for us moving forward. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to be able to define and to articulate ultimately what joy is. So here's the first note that I put in your note sheet. Joy is requested by you and it's given by God. Joy is requested by you and it's given by God. Now here's what this means. It means you can't muster it. Right? You can't, through sheer determination and willpower alone, say, you know what? I'm going to go out and go get my joy. Right? I'm just going to work really hard. I'm going to go to work early. I'm going to come home late. I'm going to put my nose to the grind. I'm going to do everything that I can. And because I work so hard, I'm going to go out and get joy. But Scripture says that's fruitless. That's futile. It makes sense in the world, right? What's the American dream? The pursuit of health, wealth, and the pursuit of happiness? Here in Canada, it's pretty much the same thing, right? Go out and get your joy. Go grab what's yours. 
And yet scripture says you can pursue all of those things and you can try to do everything the right way, but joy is fleeting. Because if you look to the world for your joy, it won't satisfy your soul. But if you look to God for your joy, you'll get it and it will never leave. And so again, that's my hope for you as we move forward, that you will see joy for what it is. So if you have your Bible, look at John chapter 16, and I want us to start at verse 19. John 16, verse 19. So the disciples, they're grappling and arguing with one another about Jesus constantly saying, when the hour comes, I will leave you. And they're kind of worried about that, and here's where we pick up verse 19. Jesus saw they wanted to ask him about this, so he said, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn into joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born in the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Circle, highlight, underline. No one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer... uh, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, but ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made complete. So Jesus says that only in him is the coming of joy. Now, let me tell you why this is such incredibly good news because the Lord of the universe has a limitless supply of joy for you. There there is no end, there is no limit to the joy that he can give you. Like, it's been a pretty rough year, hasn't it been? Have any of you here had uh, disappointments? Anyone here have some frustrations this past year? Some sadness? Have, have any of you here had debilitating sadness? Or let me just ask this. Please don't raise your hand for this one. Have you ever had a, a moment where, you know, you just kind of lost your mind for a second over something really small and you're wondering why? And you suddenly realize, man, I've been holding things in. and Like, why did I lose it for that? I think many of us over the course of the last maybe even 18 months plus have been in this place where we have been having debilitating sadness, frustration, anger, sorrow, grief, and it's all kind of building up. And yet here's here's the good news. What, What God says is when you are in those moments where you're lacking joy, whether it be sadness or frustration or a lack of gratitude, then you can come to him And the promise that he makes here in scripture is, I will give you my joy, right? It doesn't have an end in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's no end to joy in God, and they desire to give it to you. So it's not like God, like, if you make that request, Lord, please give me more joy, he's never going to say, oh, you know what, Justin? Sorry, the last guy, he took the last box, 
we're all out. And you know, due to the, the floods and due to COVID, you know, the supply chain's all messed up and the next shipment of joy isn't for another four weeks, sorry. He'll give you the joy. He will fill you up with his joy because that's the promise that he makes. Through the Holy Spirit, he will give you what you ask. You need only ask. It's, it's not like you're, you're asking for a PS5 from Walmart. He says, ask and I'll give it to you. That's verse 23. Take a look at that. He says, I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Then he says in verse 24, ask and you will receive and your joy will be made full. It'll be complete. I'll give it to you. My father will not deny that request. God ain't broke when it comes to joy. He'll give it to you. Now, here's the pushback, all right? I I recognize there might be some people in this room who would say, you know what, Justin? I've prayed for joy. I've asked God to to give me joy, and I'm not feeling it. In fact, I I feel more anguish, more sorrow, more debilitating sadness. And and so here's a message I want to share with you right on the front end, and this might hurt a little bit. It's going to require you to remove the binocular Bible and to put on the mirror Bible. I want to propose to you that there may be things in your life that are robbing you of your joy. That scripture clearly communicates that if we are clinging to the things of this world to seek satisfaction, to seek joy, then it will rob you of the very joy that God is trying to give you. So by the end of our time this morning, I want to identify some of those things so that you can look at them and say, are these things that I need to repent of? But first, just hang on to that. I want us to get a better definition of joy first. So, Christian joy is requested by you, it's given by God. And number two, it is inevitable with God and impossible without him. Two exclusive claims, right? It's inevitable with God and impossible without him. Jesus is saying that true joy is something that God and only God can give you. And without him, you can't get it. Now, here's an example I can give you. It would kind of be like saying, I got hit by a freight train and I remained unchanged, right? That's ridiculous. Of course that encounter will change you. And in the same way, if the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he will fill you with joy. It's just a byproduct of abiding with God. And we see that in verse 22. Look at this with me again. Verse 22 says, so with you, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. No one will take away your joy. Now, take note of something. Jesus here is not talking about the second coming. He's not saying when I return again in glory, then and only then will you have joy. He's talking about the resurrection, right? And one thing we have already articulated this morning is that the ministry of Jesus, his death on the cross, and his pulling off of Easter are already in the past tense. We're looking through the rearview mirror at all of those things. So here's what that means. We can have joy today. Even in the midst of the circumstances that you face, we can have joy today. 
And then he gives us this example, right? A woman in labor. That's verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So, a bit of a news flash for you. I've never given birth. However, I watched a woman give birth four times, and there's one thing that I learned through that process. When the child comes, it comes, right? And so I, I even think, uh, like, I can't go up to Julie and she say, you know, my water broke. And me say, well, you know, I'm a little bit hungry. I'm going to go to A&W first, get a grandpa burger, maybe some onion rings, and I'm going to eat that because i got a carbo load before we go to the hospital. No, the baby's coming. we got to go now. And so with respect to Liam, it was kind of interesting because for him, it was eight days past his due date, and Liam wasn't coming out. We went to the hospital. We tried to induce he wouldn't come out. They tried three different methods. He wouldn't come out. I asked permission, by the way, just so you all know. I asked permission if I could share the story. She's not here. She's in kids' church. So he just wouldn't come out. We waited 24 hours and nothing. And then in a flash, just like that, he was coming out. The doctor races in, and very quickly, he takes a look, and he says, I'm so sorry, Julie. The baby's too far along. You're no longer eligible for an epidural. And in that moment, I was so proud of Julie because there's like this this singular moment where she kind of like, she sheds a a tear and then she just puts on her game face. She's like, well, what else am I going to do? I got to go through it. Let's do this thing. And for the next couple of hours, I can tell you honestly that it was the worst day of my life. Because for the next couple of hours, Julie's life was in danger and Liam's life were in danger. By the time the delivery was done, we had about 13 different white coats in the room running around trying to make sure that Julie's life was saved. And so I I, I have this picture in my mind of exactly what Jesus is talking about right here, about this joy that is complete through the birth of a child. And I can tell you that it was both the worst day of my life and one of the best days of my life at exactly the same time. Because once Liam came out, there was this moment, if you could picture this, she's holding Liam for the very first time. And the doctors are still sprinting around the room. There's so many IVs in her, even while she's holding him, they're trying to stick her with more needles so they can get more blood, more plasma, more whatever, all inside of her to try to save her life. But she is filled with joy. And yes, she was in pain. No epidural, life-threatening delivery. Joy, pure unadulterated joy on her face. It's like for her, the whole earth stood still as she looked at this beautiful, slobbery creature. And yet everything around her was chaos and madness. And so when I, when I look at this passage, it just makes such incredible sense to me. That God says that even in your pain, even in your sadness, even in your turmoil, you can have incomprehensible joy. And so that's the third thing that I took note of in your note sheet. Christian joy is not dependent on your circumstances. In fact, it seems to be the case that joy works 
a lot like a thermostat. You know what I mean by that, right? A thermometer is something that merely assesses temperature. So you looked out at your thermometer this morning and it said two degrees Celsius. That's, the, that's how warm or cold it is outside. Or you got a sick kid and you put it under the armpit or in the mouth and it says, oh, 101 degrees. All right, he or she has a fever. It's merely assessing the temperature. But what does a thermostat do? When the weather gets cold, the thermostat kicks on and the heat of the furnace goes higher. So in a sense, here's what we see with joy. The colder life gets, the hotter the joy of God becomes within you. The more it kicks on, the more God gives you this incomprehensible joy that the world says is lunacy. And yet we know it. As Christians, we know it. We've, we've experienced this. My, my wife has experienced this with Liam. You've experienced it in your own life that you can have incomprehensible joy even in the midst of your grief. The darker the night, the brighter the stars. The colder the weather, the hotter the furnace of God's joy gets. And I know for many of you in this room, you've had a hellish year. You've had a really, really difficult year. But my prayer for you for the last about 18 months has been very singular and very focused. That God would use the circumstances of your life and the season that we are in to give you greater joy. And that you would see God for who he truly is and that you would rejoice in the work that he is doing even in the midst of those things. And that you would bow down and worship him. You know, one thing I find so remarkable is when we look at the church throughout the course of human history, we see that the more the church gets pressed down, the better it seems to do. Let me just give you two examples of this. The, The first one is the church in China. In 1950, shortly after World War II, there was intense persecution against Christians. All the missionaries were sent back home. They were deported. And the whole world cried out, God, what what are you doing? How could this be part of your plan? It looked like something amazing was about to happen. People receiving visions and signs that, that God was going to do great work in China. And then this... But one thing we know now is that there are more Christians in China today than any other country in the world. The more they were persecuted, the greater the church became. Or you look at the second and the third century in the Roman Empire. You got the the Emperor Julian and they start persecuting the church. What happens? Christianity spreads throughout the four corners of the world. Need we look at more examples of when the church is pressed down, it puts us in the very best position of where Christians should be. And where is that? On their knees. On their knees. Crying out to God, saying, Lord, give me more hope. Give me more peace. Give me more love. Give me more joy. And God says, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. You need only ask and you will receive. I love the way that the Apostle Paul puts this. Uh, the authorities in Rome, they're coming up to him and they're, they're telling him to stop proclaiming Jesus. Otherwise, we'll put you to death. And he says, well, to die is gain. And then they say, well, in that case, we're going to make you live. And he says, well, to live is Christ. Like, what are you going to do? Regardless of what you do, I will rejoice in Jesus Christ. 
Whether I live or die, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, regardless of what you do, I'm going to have joy in God. What do you do with that? And so Paul serves as an example to us. And I want you to see something else too. Here's what happens when you have joy. You become, in a sense, a magnet of good news for people around you. You are so filled with gratitude and gladness that you start sharing the good news. And that's the fourth point in your note sheet. Christian joy heralds the good news. Shares the good news. Now here's what I think is really interesting about the state of our culture in Canada, U.S., the West today. I think the bar of apologetics is lower than it's ever been. Yes, people have smartphones and they can try to refute all the arguments that you make like on, on a moral sense or if you have kind of moral arguments about whether they should accept Jesus or not. But in another sense, hear this. In Canada today, we are more depressed than we've ever been. We have more anxiety than we've ever had. We take more antidepressants and sleep medication per capita than any other time in Canadian history. There is a lack of joy in our nation beyond what we've ever experienced before. Now here's what this means. It means if we believe that joy is something that is intrinsic in all of us, that we're all longing to have this kind of joy, when they see it, when they see you, they, it's kind of like a tractor beam, like a magnet. You kind of get sucked in. They're like, why do you have such incomprehensible joy? Why are you so filled with joy? What's your secret? What's going on? You get to say, my joy is in Jesus. I think the bar of apologetics is incredibly low today because everyone's looking for this. Everyone is looking for joy. Let me just lean on two really great men as an example of this. The first is C.S. Lewis, and, and he wrote this. I think this is really fascinating. I have it up on the screen. He says this. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not just out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and to not be able to tell anyone how good he is or to come suddenly at the turn of a road up some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep it silent, or to hear a good joke, and to find no one to share it with. Isn't that unnerving? Isn't that frustrating when you find a good book, or a good movie, or a good restaurant, or whatever? You want, what do you want to do? You want to make the referral. You want to share the good news. You want to tell your friends, I found something really cool. I found a new life hack. Whatever it is, you just want to tell the people that you care about, about this incredible news. Now, those are just trivial things, right? Imagine if you had such incredibly good news that it would not only change your life, it would change everyone else's life too. And you believe that wholeheartedly. What would you do? You would shout it from the rooftops. You would say, look at this joy that I have found through Jesus and what he has done. One more story. This is from J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, he wrote a little memoir called on fairy stories and in this he said something I just think is so interesting 
He says that there's a kind of story that captivates all human hearts. They move us, whether it be a book or a fiction novel or a movie or something on a stage or a piece of music. There's kind of a sequence that stirs all of our hearts. He says there's always some incredibly helpless situation, right? And then victory is snatched out of the jaws of defeat, but it's through the victor's weakness that they find the victory. And he even has a term for it. He calls it a eucatastrophe. Euca meaning the, the, the first word of euangelion, which is good news or joyful news. And so it's a joyful catastrophe. A eucatastrophe, a joyful catastrophe. So the tragedy turns out to be a triumph. The sacrifice brings about joy. The weakness ends up being a strength. The defeat ends up being the victory. And we have so many stories like this, don't we? When you think about it. Think about uh, Beauty and the Beast or Marvel's The Avengers or Hercules or Star Wars. Even, even the Ugly Duckling. They all have the same theme. The ugly duckling turns out to be a swan. Darth Vader sacrifices his own life in order to save Luke and the entire empire. In the Avengers, Iron Man, with a snap of his fingers, he sacrifices his own life in order to save civilization. Or Belle, she gives up her happiness. She sells herself into slavery in order to save her father. But then and only then we discover that she saves the beast and the entire palace too. All of them are eucatastrophes. But then Tolkien takes it a step further and he says, there's a eucatastrophe of eucatastrophes. In a sense, all of these are just myths. They're just stories that are fictional and untrue but they all find their deepest longing in one story that is ultimately true. There was a real Hercules who defeated the enemy. There's a real Iron Man who saved civilization. There's a real true Frodo who took the ring and threw it into Mount Doom so that all of Middle-earth would be saved. There's a true story within each of these stories that our heart longs for. And we find it in the person And the work of Jesus. Through his death, through his sacrifice, we are all set free. A joyful catastrophe. And that's my fifth point. Christian joy is ultimately hope fulfilled. It's it's hope fulfilled. And I think that's partly what's happening around kids longing for Christmas presents on Christmas Day. Now, before I say this, please know... Julie and I, we engage in Christmas presents, so I'm not knocking it, all right? We're going to do that today. It's Noah's birthday today. We're going to have Christmas pre- We're going to have birthday presents. And then on Christmas Day, we're going to have Christmas presents. But I just think it's a cheap substitute that won't last if you don't have joy in the midst of it. But, but why do you do it, right? Why do you have Christmas presents? Because you did it for a reason, right? Even though, if you just think, I'm going to make you really depressed for a second, you know that one of those Christmas presents under the tree is going to be broken by noon, isn't it? And there's going to be another toy that they're going to play with for seven days straight and then never again. And then, here's a really depressing thought, everything under that tree, tree, 100% of everything under that tree is the future stuff of thrift stores, of lawn sales, and of landfill. Merry Christmas. 
So why do you do it? You did it for a reason, right? You purchased some gifts and some presents. Didn't you do it for that moment, that moment? And so they open up, they rip up all the presents, and it's socks from Aunt May. So they move that one aside, then they open up the next present, and it's, thank you, thank you, thank you, Mom, thank you, Dad, thank you, that's the present that I wanted. And their joy becomes your joy. You're just overwhelmed with excitement and joy and gladness because you see the delight in their eyes. And in the same way, that's what we find in Jesus. But here's the difference. The joy that we have in Jesus won't end up in landfill by next Christmas. The joy that we have in Jesus won't provide a cheap thrill and then we'll stop using it a week from now. This is true, life-giving, earth-altering joy that you will never lose. And so my encouragement to you as parents and grandparents, express that to your children. Allow them to see the true joy of the season, and the reason why we have incomprehensible joy. That's verse 22. It says this, halfway through verse 22, no one will take away your joy. So do you know what that means? It means that the victory has already been won. The same thing that we learn in the book of Revelation. God already has the victory. He snatched us out of the jaws of defeat through his sacrifice, through his catastrophe. We have joy, and so we can rejoice, even in the midst of the circumstances that we all face. But here's here's where I want us to go for the, the remainder of our time. There are things that you may have in your life that rob you of your joy. You might have counterfeit pleasures in your life. You might have other methods or other means that you have used in order to try to find joy, but really what you're doing is you are robbing yourself of the joy of Jesus. And so I want to just lay them before you in hopes that you don't see this as a a particular criticism of you, but that you can kind of open up your Bible as though it is a mirror and to say, God, is this true of me? Are these, are these things evident in my life? Are there things that I have to repent of and to let go of and to give them to God so that I can experience true joy, not only in this season, but for the remainder of my life? So three things that I want to identify with you as joy killers, joy snatchers. And here's the first one. Joy is stolen through what I just called counterfeits. And there's a variety of ways that you can have a counterfeit. It could be through uh, trying to numb your pain, It could be through a particular idol that you have in your life. And it could be as simple as apathy as well. See, many of us have been content with numbing our angst and our agitation as opposed to bringing them to Jesus and allowing the joy of Jesus to drive those things out. I shared this quote with you a few weeks ago from Sharon Miller. She said this, For many of us, the only time we are silent is at night. That's why worry and fear mob us in the darkness. Those anxieties were with us all day, but we were too busy, we were too distracted to search them out in the company of Jesus. So what do we do? What's a practical example of this? It could be something as simple as binge-watching Disney Plus and Netflix. It could be a particular idol or a counterfeit pleasure, like the pursuit of pornography or alcoholism. And it could be something as simple as, as overwork 
What are you doing? Why do you go to work early and come home late? Isn't it because you're distracting yourself? Isn't it because you know that there's this angst, this agitation that's in your heart and it's far easier to busy yourself with mundane pursuits? I gotta work, I gotta work, I gotta work, gotta work. Then when I get home, what do I do? I turn on the television. I'm numbing my mind. I wanna make sure that I'm never alone. Even when I'm in the car, I can't sit in silence. I turn on the radio. I turn on a podcast. I'm constantly filling my mind with anxiety and with distractions. And it's so easy for us to do. But if you constantly, constantly distract yourself, that you'll never be in a position to ask for the joy of Jesus. You're just trying to numb yourself. Here's the second one. You can rob yourself of joy, and this is a big one, through resentment and unforgiveness. Resentment and unforgiveness. See, some of us have no, no joy because of what we hold in our hearts toward other people. And so here's the promise that I can make you. As long as you hold bitterness and resentment in this one hand, you will not be able to stretch out this hand to embrace the joy that only Jesus can give. It takes two hands to carry that joy. And so you have to let go of this. I've shared this with you before. Bitterness and resentment, it's kind of like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You're destroying yourself. You're harming yourself. And in a sense, if we see that the only way that you can have joy is through Jesus, and the only way that you can have Jesus is through accepting the pure gift that he gives you through his shed blood on the cross, then what that means is you either have to fully embrace yourself as the savior of yourself, And then you can hold bitterness and resentment toward other people. Or you embrace the fact that Jesus is your savior from sin. And in doing so, you recognize that no person in this world has come close to what you have done against God. And so we let go of our bitterness and resentment. We give those things to the Lord. And we fully embrace the gift that only God can give, which is a delight and a joy and a satisfaction in abiding with him. And there's so much more to say about that. But my hope for you is that you would begin to see anew today that if you are holding resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone, you have to give that to the Lord. It's robbing you of your joy. It's robbing you of a right relationship with God. And here's the third. The third joy killer is unrepentance unrepentance. You say, Justin, what do you mean by repentance? Well, think of, it, think of it this way. If you think Christianity is just about you doing your very best, working your hardest, trying to be a good moral person, and Jesus is your mentor, he's your guide, he's your example, then no wonder you have no joy. Do you know why? Because Jesus isn't your savior. You are. You're your own savior. And so Jesus says the only way that you can truly accept me for who I truly am is if you recognize that you have fallen short of the glory of God and that you come before him humbly and on your knees and say, God, I have nothing to give you. Please forgive me through the shed blood of Jesus. And there's one part of the story that I find so incredible. If you look at your Bibles here for a second, you will see in verse 21... There's that word time and in reference to the woman who is giving birth. 
right? Her time has come. I, I think that's actually uh, not quite the right translation. The word here that I would propose to you, the Greek word here, is the word hour. And if you love the Gospel of John, something should have just clicked in your mind. Jesus is constantly talking about my, like his very first miracle when he turned water into wine. He tells his mother, Mary, my hour has not yet come. And then he keeps telling his disciples very cryptically, the hour will one day come, the hour will one day come. He's constantly talking about the hour. What is he talking about? He's talking about his hour. He's talking about his own eucatastrophe, his own joyful catastrophe. A time that will come when he will experience greater pain than any woman has ever faced in childbirth. When he stretches out his hands and he willingly dies in our place. And the Apostle Paul says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame? What was his joy? You you were the joy that was set before him. He saw my face. He, he saw your face. And that's why he stayed. The joy set before Jesus was our faces. And so he said, I will stay. I will experience catastrophe so that through that catastrophe, you might have joy. And so that's my prayer for you, is that you would see anew this joy and I just have a really quick question that I just want to lay before you this morning, and then we'll close. Is your life marked by gratitude and gladness and joy in the Lord, or is it marked by bitterness and resentment or apathy or distractions? And then a follow-up to that is I, I want to know what, what are you doing with your longings and with your aches and with your pains? Are you trying to kind of compensate for them? Are you, are you trying to like stifle them? Are you trying to distract yourself from them? Or are you bringing them to Jesus? My encouragement to you in this season, bring them to Jesus. Because the promise is there is joy for you in the hands of Jesus. And so that's my encouragement who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame so that you and I could have joy. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son and our rescuer, Jesus. We thank you for the promise that you have made us that there is, there's joy for us and it's free to take. And we see Jesus with his hands stretched out saying, here it is. Take my joy. I give it to you freely. But Lord, we also know that it takes humility to do so. There may be other things that we have to, in a sense, let go of in order to take hold of that gift. And we just ask, Lord, that you would dictate the circumstances of our life even if it comes through hard lessons, to help us let go of the counterfeits so that we can experience incomprehensible joy. So Lord, take control of our lives. In the season of Christmas, we ask that we would see anew the joy, the love, the peace, and the hope that only comes through your Son and our rescuer, Jesus. 
We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.